about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hello, my name is Deshaun and I'll be reading tonight for us from Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will Take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Luke 22, verses 24 to 38. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, 
strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you go, have a purse. But now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Oh, good evening and welcome. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you as we begin this series on questioning God and this particular issue of doubt. Now, we've received a whole lot of questions. Um, and as Mike explained, we're going to be unpacking some of those over the coming weeks. Uh, some of those questions are very personal, um, not questions that are going to be easily, uh, uh, easy for us to answer um, in terms of our preaching. So if you've asked a particularly personal question, feel free to come and talk to us um, about any of our series, but particularly if you want to follow up on the personal questions that you've raised with us, uh, we'd be only too happy to sit down and have a coffee and talk about those things as well. Well, let's explore this thought of doubt. In some senses, um, doubt is not a good thing. Uh, James says in James chapter 1, verse 6, He who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Uh, there are many senses in which doubt is not a helpful thing. And so as we think about this question of doubt, I guess we need to be a bit thoughtful about, well, do we want to be tossed and driven by the wind? Uh, do we want to be tossed around like that? Of course, at another level, I think James is not addressing everything about doubt in that phrase, and there are some elements of doubt which are actually worth considering. And I want to just address those first before we then look at some reasons uh, that doubt might be not a helpful thing uh, for us in some ways. Now, as I mentioned, I don't think James is actually condemning every kind of doubt. In fact, there's a, a kind of doubt which is about faith-seeking understanding. Uh, it's, it's, it's the moment of trying to understand your faith and deepen your faith and inquire of your faith. Uh, from one point of view, it's, it's inevitable, it's necessary to have doubts uh, in order to understand things better. Uh, recently, I was reading some, uh, in, some, a blog by um, John Dixon, who was pointing out that modern-day scepticism probably has found its roots in Christian theology and Christian thinking. He was looking at uh, 12th and 14th century uh, theologians, and what he noticed is they were discussing this idea of scepticism because what they recognised was human reason can fail. Um, and, of course, that led to scientific inquiry, to testing of things, to researching of things, because the idea that, the, that we might not be able to grasp everything and that things need to be tested is actually leads on to science. Um, and so there is a sense in which, because we are fallen human beings, uh, we need to be careful about our thinking and not always so convinced that we're completely right about uh, what we have to hold on to. There's a, there's a need for a little bit of uh, scepticalness about the way we think. Uh, Tim Keller takes this a little further, and, and I think he helpfully points out why it's actually important for some of our 
thinking to have some skepticism and some doubt. He talks about uh, a faith without doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who go around uh, living their lives without asking hard questions often find themselves defenseless when tragedy strikes or when someone starts to deeply question their faith. And he goes on to su suggest that a person's faith may even collapse if you don't actually recognize that you might have some doubts. And so I think that's actually important to recognize that skepticism and doubt and thinking through what our beliefs are is actually an important part of being, in uh, being a Christian. Now, I know that that can sound a bit threatening. I know that it can feel uh, a bit difficult and uh, produces lots of tension and anxiety sometimes. And so I think we need to handle that kind of doubt with care. And that's why we meet together as a church and in small groups and with other Christians and we pray with one another because that kind of doubt can really unsettle us. And so it's important that we continue to work together on those doubts and to be praying about where God is leading us. I think what James has in mind is a slightly different kind of doubt, the doubt that's not so much to do with scepticism, but the doubt that actually means that we become unstuck with our beliefs. Our doubt, now doubt isn't unbelief, but doubt can certainly lead to unbelief. And so that's, I think, what we need to think about, well, what I'd like to speak about tonight is that that thought of doubt leading to unbelief. And what does that, how does that work and what actually happens uh, when that is taking place? And I want to suggest uh, to look at three particular areas. Uh, the areas are of doubt and reason, doubt and spiritual warfare, and doubt and desire. Now, it's not possible for us to address all these issues and all, everything tonight. But once again, if you would like to speak about them a bit further, I'd be very happy to talk to you um, further about doubt and the role that it plays in our lives. Now, in terms of doubt and the rational or doubt and reason, um, one of the things that I've observed is as uh, people grow older or grow up, um, all kinds of things take place. And this is, this is one of the ways that doubt of the rational or doubt of reason uh, takes place in people's lives. Uh, let's say I meet a guy called Jim. I've had these conversations many times. And Jim says to me, you know, Roger, I've been thinking about my Christian faith at the moment. And one of the things about my Christian faith is it's, it's something that I grew up with. Um, it was instilled in me from the earliest days. Uh, my parents were very keen for me to go to Sunday school and to go to church. And I kind of learned things. And I know there's this body of tradition that sits behind all I've been taught. And I know that their beliefs have been held by other people, but now I'm kind of a bit more like an adult. And I kind of need to be a bit more sceptical about those things. And obviously those things have shaped my life and maybe I just need to ask some further questions. And in fact, I'm starting to think, well, it's just their tradition that they've passed on. And so uh, Jim is urged by his friends, uh, particularly if he's at university, to sort of resist that traditional indoctrination, uh, that idea that you've been indoctrinated by your friends and your family and your church, and kind of leave those things behind because it's now time to grow up. And you can see how doubt can start to creep into your life when you're starting to hear that narrative as people speak with you about your childhood. Now, the problem with that kind of doubt, of course, is there's a lot of half-truths in it. On one hand, there are plenty of things that 25 years ago were not 
uh, we know are now not true. Uh, 25 years ago, for example, it was believed that um, ulcers in your stomach were uh, as a result of stress. And so people treated ulcers in your stomach uh, in a way that you would treat stress. But then Barry Marsh, Marshall and Robin Warren uh, won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, for establishing the fact that actually ulcers in your stomach come, across, uh, come about because of bacteria, not because of stress. And so the whole treatment of ulcers in your stomach changed. On the other hand, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when you put your hand in a fire and it burnt it, uh, that is still true today. Uh, when you put your hand in a fire and burn it, it's still going to be true today. So it's not true to say that everything you believed back when you were young and two or three years old or four or five years old should be thrown out because there's actually truth that you believed then that is consistently true now. You just can't throw out everything like that. And it's, it's wrong to say it's just traditions passed on to you and therefore it's not true. That doesn't make something not true. You see how that works? And so I think one of the things that we are called to think about is when we are starting to doubt our reasons and our rational explanations for things, what is actually going on for us? And one way of thinking about it is that as we doubt something rationally, another belief is being introduced. So we're leaving one belief, where we have one belief, and it's been replaced by another belief. Now, there's a philosopher who um, has stated it this way, and I'll, I'll explain it a little bit further. But this, for those of you who like philosophy, this guy really, really has some good insights into this particular area. He says, doubting of any explicit statement merely implies the attempt to deny the belief expressed by the statement in favour of other beliefs which are not doubted for the time being. And so frequently what people come to me and say is, look, I'm not really sure that those traditions and those things that have been handed on to me by my parents and by uh, my church and et cetera, et cetera, are so true anymore. I'm starting to doubt them and I'm believing something else. Now, the interesting thing that happens there is that as they believe something else, they're not nearly as rigorous about that belief. They're not nearly as searching about the new belief that they're, being, they're adopting. It sort of just sort of creeps in. It seems like the right thing to do to discard the things of old. And I want to suggest to you that the biggest problem with this whole area of doubt and reason is we don't doubt our doubts. We don't actually ask the question, why are we doubting? What, what, what are we replacing our beliefs with? We don't doubt our doubts. I want to encourage you that if this is an area that you struggle with, doubt your doubts. Be rigorous with your doubts. Explore them. Understand what it is you're replacing your current belief with. And just don't accept that something else must be believable. I mean, Hebrews has a lot to say about this kind of thinking, and particularly, I think, in regards to Christian maturity. And I think this is actually one of the areas where 
reason starts to fade a bit as we leave behind Christian maturity as well. I mean, in Hebrews chapter 5, we hear a warning and it says, in fact, at this, through this time, you, you, sorry, in fact, you should be teachers. You need someone to teach you, however, the elementary truths of God over and over again. You need milk, but not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward in maturity. You see, what that's saying is, yes, you may well have formed views in your youth which need to be developed, but develop them. Grow in Christian maturity. Grow in your understanding of what God is doing. Study the scriptures. Get to know them. Understand what it means to meet with other Christians and wrestle with the difficult things of Christianity and life. But apply yourself. Don't be, don't be satisfied with spiritual milk. Get on to the spiritual meat. And then you will have trained yourself to distinguish good from evil. And so I think that's an important antidote to this notion of reason and doubt. Now, it's not all we could say, and as I said, uh, you can come and talk to me afterwards further if you'd like to about that whole area. But I want to suggest to you that reason is not the only reasons that reason is not the only area that uh, doubts have something to do with. Uh, we also need to think about doubts in other ways, and one of the other ways is to think of it as spiritual warfare. Um, in Ephesians six, we read words like this: "For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against spiritual." forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, as Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, he's speaking to the whole church and he's saying, we're actually in this spiritual battle. One Peter puts it a bit more personally when he says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Uh, this is personal. You may not have thought of that. You may not have realized that actually um, the enemy, the devil, would prowl around as actually interested in your life, in seeding doubt into your life, that you are actually in a spiritual battle and that you could be persuaded to go elsewhere. Now, part of the reason for that is that in our Western culture, we don't often think about spiritual warfare. Um, I think C.S. Lewis has some great insight into this um, in his Screwtape Letters. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They that themselves are equally pleased with both errors. Because in both cases, it's not actually taking this terribly seriously or helpfully. Now, one of the privileges I've had over the last year is to speak with a number of Christian leaders in Asia, and it's very clear they are very aware of a spiritual battle that they're in. They know that there's a spiritual battle going on for their own hearts, but also for the hearts of those around them. And I want to suggest to you that we need not to go over the top, but to recognize that there is a spiritual battle 
and that doubt is one of the ways that that spiritual battle is fought. Uh, returning to the screw tape letters, if you're familiar with it, what happens is C.S. Lewis uh, creates some fictional uh, characters. There's uh, Uncle Screw Tape and his young apprentice Wormwood. And Uncle Screw Tape writes letters to his apprentice Wormwood, who's a tempter from the underworld. And the idea is that Wormwood is trying to tempt Christians away from their Christian lives. And this is in chapter 12, a letter that he writes. And I want to give you an illustration of how this might work in terms of a spiritual battle, because in many ways, the screw tape letters is about this spiritual battle. He writes this to Wormwood. This is Uncle Screwtape. The best part of it is that the patient does not even realise that he's making some decisions that are leading him patiently away from the truth. Obviously, you're making excellent progress. My only fear is that you might hurry your patient and awaken him to the real sense of his position. He must not be allowed to suspect, however slowly, that he's heading away from the sun and into a cold and dark place. For that reason, I'm really happy that he's a churchgoer. I know that there's dangers in this, but anything would be better than for him to realise that he's making a break with his Christian life. And while he's there, he won't have to contend with that thought of repenting of particular sins, of recognising sins. He'll just have this vague uneasiness, a feeling of things not doing so well lately. And it doesn't matter how small the sins he's committing are, it's their cumulative effect that hedge him away from the light into nothing. The safest one is a gradual one, a gentle slope, a soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, milestones, and without signposts. Can you hear what he's saying there? There's a spiritual battle going on. It's not going to look like a thunderous big battle and a fight going on around you. It's going to look like a slow turning away. And in this case, it's the failure to recognise the sinfulness of our own hearts. And so instead of actually repenting and acknowledging there are sinful ways of behaving, ways against God that are disobedient, there's this general unease and a kind of quick prayer of, God, uh, I've done something wrong, I'm sorry. There's no, no genuine path to maturity. There's this gradual slide and gradual move away from actually coming before a holy God. And so doubt is sown and a spiritual battle begins to one, be won by the opposite side, so to speak. And yet, there is great hope. Because in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we know that Jesus has won the battle. If you've felt that going on in your own life, this is the truth that you need to hold on to, and it's the truth that I hold on to. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, who he loves 
in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and he has brought you into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And therefore you have the forgiveness of sins. And so you can come to him with your doubts, with those things that you thought you were hiding from him. You can come to him with those sins that you didn't quite want to acknowledge because they scare you or that you feel ashamed of them. And say to him, I know you know already. You've already seen deep into my heart. I know there's a spiritual battle on and I know I want to ignore those things. But actually, I give you thanks. Because I have the forgiveness of sins. And there is, I have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. As it were, in many ways, the war has been won in Jesus' death and resurrection. And we need to lay claim to that in this spiritual warfare for our own hearts and our lives, particularly in this area of doubt. One final area to think about in terms of doubt and the way that it might lead us to unbelief, and that is to do with uh, the whole idea of doubt and desire. Uh, you might remember we've talked about, if you've been here for a while, we've been talking about the particular phrase that says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Uh, what the heart loves, what the heart desires and wants and feeds on, the will suddenly chooses, and then you can justify whatever you've chosen. Because, actually, you love something in particular. Now, an example of that is what we've been seeing in Psalm 73. Um, and in this particular instance, the psalmist is struggling with his envy. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. They, they, they are people with power and authority, with wealth. They seem to have health and their lives seem to all to be together. And of course, the psalmist is reflecting on his own life and perhaps that's not the case for him. Perhaps that's not the situation for him where he has all the prosperity, has no struggles, his health is good. And so he's plagued by this sense of, well, actually my desires are not being met by following God. Maybe I could get my desires met differently by doing something else. And you can see the struggle, can't you? If, you? if you have a deep desire and it's not being met by God or it doesn't feel like that, then your desires can start to lead you to love something else. And then your will chooses and then you find a way for your mind to justify uh, what you're doing. And in the process, what you do is you doubt your original beliefs and you replace your original beliefs with something else. Something else you believe in, which is not actually what God calls us to. And that struggle is very real and significant. Um, in verse 16, the psalmist reflects, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. I can imagine uh, the psalmist recognizing how much pain it caused him 
as he acknowledged the differences and he struggled with the own desires of his own heart and his envy of other people. In fact, he can't solve it in many ways in an intellectual way. He's tried to understand it, but actually that hasn't worked. And then in verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart, they fail him. And so in, in the fight against this desire and this looking on, he's, he recognises that the doubts are actually growing. And he's not winning the battle against the desires that he has. It's interesting to then see how he deals with that. And what he does is he turns to worship the Lord. He talks about him going into the sanctuary to worship the Lord. And this is what he says in the sanctuary. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. He's speaking to God. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Notice the, the desire thing there. I'll come back to that in a moment. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What I think the psalmist is doing here is being really honest about his doubts. He envies the others. He sees their God of better life. And yet what he's doing is worshipping God and reshaping his heart. He's holding on the truths of God. And so that's what we do actually when we gather together as God's people, as we pray together, as we listen to music, as we listen to singing together, as we sing together, as we listen to God's word, as we hear it taught, as we speak with one another and meet with one, one another in small groups. What we're doing is learning to believe what is true. And as we do that, we reshape our desires. And so that's what he says. And the earth has nothing I desire about you. Can you do you think that's actually totally true of everything he's just said? No. He's worshipping the Lord and he's learning how to do that. He's reminding himself of that truth. Actually, the situation should be that I have nothing but desire for you. And so I'm going to commit to that. But he also is very honest about the difficulty. He says, my flesh and my heart will fail. But look at what he says. But God is the strength of my heart. He actually knows he's not going to win if he has to battle these desires. It's actually going to be God who wins. God who changes his heart and gives him strength in the midst of doubt, in the midst of his desires to move in other ways. You see, in the end, I don't think doubt needs to have the last word in our lives. Sure, we need to explore it. We need to think about it deeply. We need to uh, recognize that it's true. I mean, it's so interesting in the Bible, isn't it, to find the psalmist expressing his doubts in this way. God is obviously big enough to deal with the fact that we have doubts and big enough to let people know that people have doubts. That's why this is there. But we don't have to feel like we're in a position where we we won't be able to get through it. That there'll be never a way out of it. Yes, Christians will experience doubt and there will be challenges and there will be things to talk through. 
but we have a confidence because God is the strength of our heart. Because in the end, Jesus is our faithful high priest who's made an atonement for our sins and intercedes for us. As Hebrews reminds us, he was tempted in every way without sin and so he provides us with the grace to help us in our time of need. And we saw that so beautifully portrayed in that passage uh, with Peter and Jesus just earlier from Luke chapter 22, didn't we? You know, um, Peter, Simon, he's called in this passage, is just about to go off and betray Jesus. The temptation will be too much. His doubt in who Jesus is will overwhelm him. He will deny Jesus. The cock will crow three times. It'll be very, very evident that the doubt has been realized in his life. But listen to what Jesus says to him, which is so beautiful and and reflects this idea that God is the strength of our heart. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. The great high priest is interceding on our behalf that our faith will not fail. That despite our doubts and despite our struggles, he is on our side helping us. And such is the assurance of those who entrust themselves to Jesus' care. Because he's already met the evil one. He's already defeated the evil one. He's already faced the temptations, the doubts, whether they be intellectual or to do with our desires or to do uh, with the spiritual warfare that takes place. He's already met those things and won. And so it's in him that we find the strength for our heart, for our minds and against this spiritual battle to continue and put doubt in its right place and not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.